Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very excited to be joined today by Rashida Childress, the Senior Editor for Fundraising at the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and Emily Haynes, a Senior Reporter at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Rashida, Emily, thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I asked you to come in to talk about a very recent article you've just written on the Giving USA's most recent data release. But before we get into that, uh, can uh, either or both of you talk a little bit about the Chronicle of Philanthropy and help people understand the work you do there and how people can access that? Yeah, um, the Chronicle of Philanthropy is a um, news organization, and we cover um, nonprofits and and philanthropy <laughs> where people are giving money and ways that. Um, organizations that are nonprofit and raising money and, and dealing with philanthropy um, can better do their work. Um, um, we specifically cover fundraising, um, Emily and myself. And so we talk to a lot of people who are um, fundraisers and who are small nonprofits who are trying to raise money and trying to keep that uh, money flowing so that they can carry out their mission. Um, and recently, the Chronicle just this year became a nonprofit before it had been a for-profit news organization. And now we are a nonprofit news organization. So we are just like the people we cover. It was unaware of that. Congratulations to you both and to everyone there at joining the nonprofit community. That's very exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is. So folks can not only go to your site, uh, and we'll have links in the show notes about both this article and just the Chronicle in general, uh, and uh, subscribe and do things there, but apparently also now donate. Is that an option uh, within your new nonprofit structure? Yes, donation right. is an option. Um, yes. Well, uh, this, of course, is our topic for today, is how to help people understand the importance of making donations. Uh, Giving USA has uh, pre-released some information to some folks to, to see what they have learned about 2022 data. Uh, the two of you have written a fantastic article that we'll have linked in the show notes uh, about that, uh, helping to not only read through and understand some of that information, but to contextualize it a little bit for the reader. Um, so I certainly, if you haven't read that article yet ahead of listening, to this podcast, uh, maybe pause for a moment, take a second, go look at that, or certainly read it after you listen. But uh, it has got a, a tremendous amount in there. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, Emily, maybe you could just start us off with um, how did you get early access? Is this something that the, is a regular thing with Giving USA, or do they are the, is something they're doing newer this year? I'm just wondering how they decided to help you reach a broader audience about what they're learning. Yeah, I think um, I've been at the Chronicle for about four years, so I've benefited from a real legacy of a strong relationship between the Chronicle and the Lilly School of Philanthropy and Giving USA, the Giving USA Foundation. So for as long as I've been at the Chronicle, they've been kind enough to give us early access and um it is always a bit of a scramble reporting this story because there's always a period where we have not yet seen the numbers and we are talking to folks who have also not seen the numbers. <laughs> so that's always a challenge um, because, as you mentioned, we're trying to make this as forward looking of a story as we can. Um, and so we do a lot of early reporting before we see the report, asking folks how their current year fundraising has been going. And that's usually um, a helpful indicator as to, you know, what folks should be taking away from the report. It's helpful that for people on calendar years, it does come out right around the mid-year point. And so mm -hmm. they can sort of make any strategy adjustments they need to for the rest of the year. 
Great. Well, you know, not to bury the lead here, if we can use the old journalistic saw on that, but you know, your your title was literally fundraising in 2022 was among the worst ever giving USA has found. Uh, so not to be alarmist, but to be factually correct, there's some things that have happened here that we just haven't seen in the long-term trends on philanthropic giving in the United States. So Rashida, as you were thinking about some of these findings and coming out with a, a pretty eye-grabbing title, um, what raises the most concern for you out of some of those early findings that you're looking at? Yeah. Um, well, some of the main concerns is there was a drop, you know, in charitable giving between 2021 and 2022. So, you know, I don't know that it was the worst ever, but it was really, it was a, the worst drop that we've seen in terms of fundraising. And um, so one of the things it was, I think it was negative 10.5% adjusted inflation mm -hmm. adjusted. Um, and so that that's a big drop from one year to the next. Um, I guess the good news is that if you look at 2019 versus 2022, they're pretty similar in how much money was fundraised. I think it's like 500 million for 2019 and 499.0 something for 2022. So those three years where we had the pandemic, 20 or well, I guess two years, 2020 and 2021, those were unusual years. Those were really mm -hmm. people showed up um, to help in a time of need. And that really raised fundraising. Um, but the concern is whether or not um, this trend of, of going down is going to keep going on as, you know, if beyond um, as we move forward. And it's a little concerning because we did look at some of the data from the past. And one of the big problems is that individual giving has dropped significantly. So it used to be that individuals in 2012 made up 74% of gifts. And in 2022, they only make up 64%. And so foundations have increased um, and I believe bequests have increased. Mm -hmm. And so, but we're not getting as much from individuals and it, it can be concerning because that's tends to be where the bread and butter um, of fundraising comes from. And so a lot of the people that we spoke with suggested to kind of take a step back maybe from some of the big donors who have really helped propel um, giving in the past couple of years and really try to reach out to those everyday donors because they're going to keep you afloat as, as things get rough. So when you talk about roughly five hundred million dollars, twenty nineteen, roughly five hundred billion, pardon me, about roughly five hundred yeah, billion. billion in in uh, twenty twenty two, um, is that inflation adjusted? Or are we talking real dollars there? Those are inflation adjusted dollars. Okay. So, um, do we know which one of those is adjusted upward? Uh, was was the actual it's giving in twenty nineteen a little bit less, but inflation adjusted closer to five hundred? Yes, I believe okay. so. I can actually I can pull the number if you want me to. Um, yeah. So Steve, I do have those numbers for mm -hmm. inflation and non-inflation adjusted giving. So in 2019, the non-inflation adjusted, the, the regular dollars number, it was $436.99 billion raised. Um, and then in 2022, it was $499.33 um, okay. raised. Inflation adjusted 2019 was $500.17 billion and 2022 was $499.33 billion. So the adjusting by inflation up to 2019 by about uh, $70 billion. 
Well, I do think that this inflation thing is one of the other big parts of this story, that we haven't seen inflation numbers like this um, impacting the ability to pay people, buy goods, do all the work that charities do in the way that we have in the last you know year and a half, year for sure. Um, and as we try to contextualize what's happening here, uh, inflation is a big part of this story, is to try and say maybe in absolute dollars, things haven't you know been that far off, but in terms of inflation adjusted, uh, the impact on the ability of charities to do their work is is more serious than perhaps smaller drops might have been in other years. Um, how do you think about that, or what what do you think of those findings as you talk about them in the story? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from the the findings this year is inflation. You know, is partly responsible. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how big of a role it plays, but certainly it plays a role in in robbing most causes um, of gains in 2022. Only international affairs managed to grow their giving from the previous year. And when we think about what happened in the world in 2022, we think about the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We mm-hmm. think about the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey. So donors were responding to real significant global events. You have to wonder if that didn't happen. It, it stands to reason that, you know, um, international affairs would have been just like everybody else. So um, with the cost of everything growing, um, we're feeling it as consumers. Donors are certainly feeling it on the small dollar end. Um, and then nonprofits are feeling it for sure, because, you know, the cost of buying the goods that they need to meet their mission, um, even sometimes rent is increasing. So donors aren't giving enough to compensate for those price hikes. And that's really significant. And uh, I've had sources point out to me that that is at the high end too. Um, Psychologically, donors don't really take inflation into account when they think about their giving. It's sort of a, a, it's based off of their own finances. So a donor who, uh, one source said something along the lines to me that a donor who maybe gave a hundred thousand in 2021 wasn't going to factor in eight percent inflation and say, "Oh, I should give a hundred and eight thousand this year." That's just not the way that people make their giving decisions. So, and and I think it's a challenge for fundraisers too because um, asking for bigger gifts or more frequent gifts because of inflation isn't isn't really sort of um, an animating call to action. And so um, it's a challenge for fundraisers. How do you walk that line? The, the the high costs are real, but how do you sort of motivate donors to step up when they themselves are paying more for everything? In the middle of these last couple of years, you know, there was a, a pretty substantial jump up in giving as some of us were getting uh, uh, pandemic boosts in government aid and other things and not doing very much outside the house, not having those incursions and not seeing that kind of inflation. So I think there was a generally accepted, well, sure, giving is going to go up. There's a big need during a pandemic. Um, some of us had extra dollars that we maybe weren't um, necessarily needing for our own um, lives and, and uh, expenses. So that that certainly jumped 2020, uh, substantially less in 2021. Um, but now that we're you know seeing the end of all of that kind of uh, pandemic relief, uh, do, do we 
anecdotally just draw some conclusions that we're, we're kind of maybe suffering a little bit of a boomerang of, well, I gave all that extra in those last couple of years, and now inflation is so high, I'll, I'll just kind of cut back myself a little bit. Is that one possible scenario here? Um, I think that's one possible scenario. I think people are feeling the effects of inflation, especially when you look at that individual giving number, which has just kind of been dropping. Yeah. Um, so individuals, they're feeling it in their pocketbooks. They know how much gas is. They know how much um, the price of food is, and that's gone up. And so how much they have extra and left over to give is, um, you know, that's, that's going to be smaller. So that, that can be an issue moving forward. I think probably one of the highlights or one of the good pieces from the report is that international giving, um, that was one of the areas that even despite inflation still had some gains. Now they weren't huge gains, but they were gains. Mm -hmm. And so I think that just shows that if your cause is prominent and if your cause is getting its message out, it can still do well because we know with the crisis in Ukraine, that was what was driving a lot of that. And that was on the news regularly. And that was pushing people out. And I think even in, um, I'm trying to look at the numbers for 2020, I kind of think like food banks and those mm. type of human services, they had that bump in 2021 um, where people were like, oh my goodness, people are starving. Let's make sure that they have food to eat because of you know the COVID crisis. And so- if your message is strong enough, I think people will donate. But overall, I think in general, people are kind of pulling back as the inflation um, is hitting. Right. So as you think about where people are still giving, you know, things that are getting a lot of popular attention, things that people really feel they can see and connect with are, are doing maybe a little better. But that then raises the question about some of the stalwarts where, um, you know, giving to religious institutions, for example, has just been such a rock solid piece of the Giving USA story since this data has been collected, you know, tithing to your local church or mosque or temple or wherever you're giving um, had been a big part of that. Uh, do we feel like that's shifting as America's demographic is shifting around their relationship with houses of worship and that kind of thing? Or is that just kind of steadier, but everything else is kind of coming down too. So that, that number is just harder to read. Yeah. I mean, it's always, it's always a bit confusing looking at the pie chart that comes out of it, because if you were just to rank the top causes, um, giving to religion is, is always cause number one. I believe it always has been since mm -hmm. they started collecting this data in 1957. So, um, but you know, the share of dollars going to religion that has been shrinking. So there is some, you know, I reported on another um, giving foundation, giving USA foundation um, study of generational trends in giving that did show some um, sort of encouraging signs among um, sort of religious attendance and religious giving among millennials. Hmm. Um, I think uh, some of the sort of one of the more interesting findings from this current Giving USA report um, was the fact that higher education fell into third place um, among the ranking. Now they're still getting an enormous amount of support right. um, and they're obviously still a really popular cause when it comes to things like bequests, large gifts, that sort of thing. Um, but it is notable that um, human services sort of eked out um, a, the second place slot, they received 14% of the overall contributions while education received 13%. Um, 
We don't know whether that has to do with just um, economic causes, obviously, um, especially gifts to campaigns or bequests. Those can sometimes be made up of stock or other sorts oh, of right. yeah, gifts that are more tied to the stock market. Um, but, you know, it could potentially be a signal that there's sort of a coming generational shift in giving that um, report I mentioned a moment ago on generational giving trends, only boomers, they were the only generation that had education in their top three causes. That's a big deal. Um, so when we think about, you know, millennials, Gen Z, Gen X coming up sort of on the heels of boomers, does that mean that education is going to be falling out of favor with donors? And if so, how should colleges and universities be positioning themselves? Um, I think that's going to be something to really look into in the future, especially that we know that so many colleges and universities are in the middle of campaigns right now. So that's definitely something to watch for this year and beyond. Yeah. And in your article, you mentioned that, uh, you know, one of the big differences generationally, too, is that, um, you know, people coming out of higher education these days are are saddled with substantially more debt than was ever historically seen by anyone. And the feeling of I'm still paying student loans and you want me to make a gift. I mean, you know, that that does, I think, really impact the ability of folks to make the gift, let alone their feeling of generosity and, and connection to that institution where one of their bigger checks every month may be that big student loan, you know, payment or whatever. Now, again, up until just about now, actually, those have been in suspension for a couple of years during the pandemic. Um, as of the time we're recording this, I don't think the Supreme Court has released their opinion about the legality of any forgiveness in student debt, but I, I think we're all assuming that's not going to happen, that we all go back into repayment on September of this year. And even anticipating that might be something that is going to be more challenging for a lot of people that are still carrying debt to think about, am I going to give to the alma mater or am I going to you know, not make that gift right now? So uh, in your reporting, and either of you that want to jump in on this, you know, do do you do you uh, think about that particular component of how people give when they're carrying more debt than they had to carry than than their previous generations had to carry? That's something that I I did discuss with folks, and it's a it's certainly sort of a a a thought a way of thinking that um, mm -hmm. folks are thinking about. Um, I think you know we we did. Um, when I I, I want to say she was at Dartmouth, um, but there was one a major gift fundraiser that we talked to in the report that that did mention, and and I don't know again sort of the age demographic of her donors, but she did mention sort of a shift in positioning um, her her appeals for gifts more about sort of how can you make an impact on the broader world through giving to your alma mater. So I do wonder whether that sort of repositioning of mm -hmm just give to your college, you know, that you're still paying off your loans for, but also like, here's a conduit to support, you know, broader change in the world. So I wonder whether that's going to be um, more widely adopted in education. But I do think that that is real, especially as inflation is sort of easing, but is very much still with us. Um, people are going to continue to make tough choices with where they give their shrinking discretionary dollars. Yeah, I think as we look at the idea of where the ability to give those discretionary, you know, and and discretionary is of course a very different thing for every individual, right? Some some people will make 
that contribution to the church they go to uh, first, and then you know they pay off other bills later. And others, you know, it really becomes more of a luxury to make those kinds of you know alma mater or or you know spiritual institution gifts or whatever. But I think the big question, a lot of this, as we keep thinking about over the last several years, uh, this generational wealth shift, uh, you know, is there going to continue to be this concentration of more and more wealth in fewer and fewer hands? And how does that impact philanthropy versus, uh, you know, is there eventually going to be some uh, you know, shift in wealth as, uh, um, you know, interfamily giving happens uh, over time. Does that make the type of giving change a little if it's a younger generation that has that disposal of income that that earlier generation is now passing on? And I don't know that we have an answer to that because I think we all thought there was going to be more of that generational wealth transition, but maybe it's just going to continue to be concentrated. And you you wrote about that a little bit too in your story here as you talk about um I can't remember if it was six or so couples or 16 couples or something made up a huge percentage, 6% or six couples. Six Six individuals and couples. Yeah. So uh, Rashida, as you were thinking about that amazing concentration of wealth within just that small group of people and how that alone could tip what's being reported in the entire U.S. giving, how do you think about concentration of wealth versus generational transfer or how those things might impact giving? It's going to, it's going to have an impact. It's having an impact right now that there's so much giving, um, by individuals who have a lot of wealth and it's sort of skewing towards what those individuals want. And one of the things that, um, I talked about with one of the college people was, um, just how their big donors come in and they don't even just want to give to the capital campaign or they don't want to, they have their own things that they want in mind that they want to give to for the, for the university. And And that's what they want to give to and not anything else. And so, you know, you've got people making decisions based on not necessarily what the greater good is for the organization, but kind of what the donors want to give to. And so that's shaping philanthropy a little bit. And many of the people we talked to said that it's going to be really important for people to, um, or organizations to get back to individual donors to get back to broaden their base of people, um, even if they're really small dollar donations, just so that as those people do come into, say, that generational wealth, or they do um, have some extra income, they're like, oh, let me give more to this territory. This sort of building the pipeline that more organizations really need to focus on building that pipeline, on spreading it out and getting, you know, many more people in there. And we don't we don't know what's going to happen with, with the generational wealth transfer. It's people are living longer, mm-hmm. um, so it may not happen for for a while. The way it happened, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, they say the person who's going to live to be one hundred and thirty is already alive. So huh? <laughs> that does not bode well for generational wealth transfer. And it does kind of put the the driver's seat, you know, into the um, you know relatively young Mackenzie Scotts of the world who have tremendous ability to shape the future of what we think of as U.S. giving. Um, and, um, you know, I think some of us are impressed with what she's doing, but the the disproportionate amount of influence that it has is is pretty remarkable. I mean, if you were to remove her giving alone from this report, things would be much worse than they are actually looking right now. So just one person uh, removed from this whole picture, and it, it could shake things a little bit. So as we think about those philanthropists that are doing something and still have tremendous amounts of wealth to 
work with. I mean, despite how much has been given from some of these people, the concentration of wealth that they have is such that they can continue to have that outsized impact for a long period of time. Um, I, I I think that there was some writing in your article about, you know, really thinking about major donor departments and going after those folks, but um, to the detriment of going after the vast number of people at the bottom of those ladders. And as you think about the impact of some of those large donors, uh, how, how do they shape both the amount and kind of where people are giving? Is is that something that you can extrapolate or think about even from just this report? Um, well, I think, you know, a, a couple um, statistics that really stand out to me as far as individual giving goes is that um, individual contributions of $500 million or more made up 5% of all individual giving. And so I think, you know, we think about all the gifts that Mackenzie Scott alone gave last year mm-hmm. and think about the causes she supports. She gave to Habitat for Humanity. I believe she gave a big gift to Planned Parenthood. She's been supporting HBCUs. So, yeah, I mean, her priorities certainly are driving where those big dollars go. Um, it's also notable that... Um, when you look at overall giving, like total charitable giving, not just individual giving, uh, 3% of those dollars, so th- almost 14 billion, um, that went, was just from six individuals and couples. So again, that's you know a tiny sliver of donors making really outsized contributions. Um, and I think you're right that their, their personal priorities are going to transform you know, where those dollars go. But I also think it's worth noting that if even a few of those mega donors, you know, choose to sit 2023 out for whatever reason, if it's because of the economy, or maybe they feel like they've done enough in recent years, Mm -hmm. anything like that, that's going to take a huge bite out of the overall giving. And I think um, another point that was expressed in this report is the rise of family foundations. So we are seeing wealthier folks choose to use family foundations as a giving vehicle, as opposed to giving as an individual. And, you know, there are some consultants who, who say that, you know, family foundations, those foundations are still run by individuals, by families. They have, you know, priorities that are set out by real people. And that's very true, but it's also true that the relationship between a a nonprofit and a foundation is quite different than the relationship between, you know, a major gift fundraiser and one specific donor. So that sort of grant maker versus donor relationship is different and and requires a different approach. Um, And uh, that's definitely something to watch if more and more wealthy folks choose to give through foundations as opposed to just individual gifts. Yeah. I was just saying if I could just yeah, yeah if I could just piggyback on that in terms of the foundations, um giving to foundations was up and foundations made up a bigger chunk of who was giving. Um, but one of the things we talk to the folks at Candid who do a lot of research on foundations. And they say it's pretty stable, the amount that foundations give. So once the money goes into the foundation, it's only coming out at like 5% a year. So it doesn't matter, you know, how how much is in there is kind of going to vary with the stock market, but foundations aren't suddenly giving like 10% or 15% or 20% of their assets. It's basically 5% a year, every year. um, So they can 
keep going. And so if you're giving money, uh, if it, more individuals are giving to foundations, if foundations are becoming a bigger piece of the pie, it's sort of going to limit a little bit sort of what you're getting out, out of them. Right. I, I think that trails into the question, and you touch on this in the article too, about donor advised funds and giving through that mechanism differently from creating a separate family foundation. Um, each of these opportunities allows those families to uh, take advantage of a fairly you know, large size tax deduction in the year that they put the money into those institutions. But when that money comes back out uh, at some point, or if it ever comes back out, if it's just used as, as capital to continue to earn more capital, um, is a wholly different question. So as we look at the impact money that's happening in 22 versus the money that's going into systems in 2022, the donor advised fund question is, I, I think, just getting bigger. If I understand not only you know this report, but just other conversations that people are putting money into those funds and not necessarily thinking that they're going to be exercising all of that money back out anytime in the very near future. Um, I spoke to a couple people at different um, donor advised funds for this story. Mm -hmm. And um, well, the one thing that's interesting is First off, there was less money went in in 2022, but more came out. So that was good that oh, people okay. who had donor advised funds um, were, you know, put, taking the money that was in there and using it to give to their causes. Um, and, you know, it's it, it's a good question. You know, I think that's something that gives people concern that people get that tax write off right away, but they don't have to spend the money right away. Um, but if people are viewing a DAP as an easy way to do a foundation, as opposed to all the tax headaches of setting mm -hmm. up a foundation, and they truly only want to put out 5% a year, you're going to same, have that same issue that you have with foundations. Um, the people at Vanguard Charitable had said that they are getting a lot of people who are doing recurring donations. So that is good for charities if they can get someone who's got a donor advice fund to set that up a recurring grant each year or every six months. Um, if because more people apparently are doing that and that would give them more stability of income. But I don't know that it was a huge chunk of people who who were doing it. Um, but that is something, certainly if you know that you have donors who have DAFs and want to give that way, that's something that nonprofits can approach those staff donors about and say, hey, have you considered this? Or did you know you could do this? Well, if, if we can find them, and I think there's one of the big challenges about this report and others is when money goes into things like donor advised funds, it's not, you know, part of the uh, challenge for the nonprofit there is to how do you make connections with people that may be making that particular tool um, work for them? Because it's not uh, as easy to just look them up on any grant making chart. That's not how those funds make their gifts. Uh, so it's it, it could be there. It could be something that has a good connection. But if you don't already know that family, that donor, that whatever, it's harder to then make the case for here's what's happening with inflation in our area. And we really would love you to consider a, a increased gift this year. Um, if some of that money has gone into those places and you're just not connected to those donor advisors yet, um, whole, wholly different conversation that we could probably have for the next 30 minutes or so. But I do think it's interesting to look at in terms of where is the money coming in and where is it eventually you know, kind of coming back out. Uh, and the the idea that I think you you talked with a couple of people about in this article of um, spreading out that conversation to more, uh, not just necessarily uh, major donors, uh, folks that are going to be giving large gifts, um, but a larger number of people to, to ask them to step in. And maybe part of this is telling this story that you're writing about here, um, that these other sources that maybe you assumed were taking care of the bills that the causes you care about are not necessarily stepping in in the way that they need to in an inflation 
stationary environment and you individual donor can really make up that difference. Um, but messaging and talking about that requires people time. That's an expense. Those people tend to be more expensive in an inflationary environment. Um, it's challenging. I mean, to think about of the people you talk to, do folks feel like they're ready to invest more money in doing the fundraising component or are they just really hesitant to do that? Um, I, I just wanted to ask, I'm sorry to interrupt. I keep losing connection. Is it possible if folks could turn their um, cameras oh, off? Sure. So it can be a little bit sure. easier for my bandwidth. Thank you. Um, and Steve, I'm, I'm very sorry. I missed the first nope. half of your question, but you were talking about investing more money in fundraising. and In order to reach those smaller donors, uh, that larger number of smaller donors, you know, that that's probably going to be more staff time, contractor time, expense in some way. And are they willing then to take on that additional expense to try and bring in smaller dollar donors to alleviate where maybe some of those larger dollar donors aren't coming in? Well, I think that's a great point. And I talked with um, um, a fundraiser at Project Hope who who talked about um, work that they are an international aid charity. So they, of course, had quite a good year last year, um, but they, um, they've made a real concerted effort in the last five years or so to really increase their focus on small dollar and mid-level donors stewarding them attracting more dollars um and and that is that does mean more more money you know dedicated to that fundraising strategy that same fundraiser however told me that this seems to be the year that um the contracts for sort of outside vendors contractors you know the folks that help with whether it's designing campaigns or running ads or strategy or anything like that um that 2023 seems to be the year that those folks are raising their rates. So, so yes, I think that um, fund, it seems to be the case that um, building out those mid-level small dollar donor programs will insulate you over the long term from sort of drop in, in donations from major donors. Um, however, it does mean upfront costs and given the current inflationary <laughs> environment, those upfront, it's sort of a bitter pill to swallow, but, um, you know, experts that we talked to did say that, that that is the right approach right now. Yeah. Challenging to, you know, balance all of these things as we look at the um, preliminary information from 2022 and thinking about how that's impacting us in 2023. Because I do think that as we look at the inflationary pieces hitting people, you know, the expectation is that is going to be the, you know, reflected in salary costs of whatever, however you hire people to do this work. Uh, it is going to be a while. And usually it's going to take some time to get those programs up and running in a way that really connects with those donors where they're feeling that thing that you had talked about with the, in 2022, the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, where they're seeing it all the time. They're hearing it. They're really feeling motivated to make a gift. Um, that usually doesn't happen on the first email message of, hi, I haven't heard from us in a little while, but you know, we could really use your help. Um, it's going to take a while to build those things together. So earlier upfront costs, longer time to benefit and, you know, um, this kind of dip in other things does make it harder, I think, for charities to to feel like they can balance that. But I'm not sure that there's another solution either. Uh, I mean, if we could all feel like, well, you know, inflation will be over tomorrow, so we'll just wait for that and then everything's going to be better. Um, you know, I don't think we have a sense of when that 
may turn around how that's going to impact charities ability to do their jobs differently uh, i think we got to keep moving forward with the assumption that this is going to be a factor for a while and how do you best you know move with these with these donors so um with that in mind as as you're thinking about what do you know about happening in 2023 already uh are are there things that you can think of that you're hearing from some of the folks you've talked to for this article and others that you've been writing that uh people are saying we feel like this is a a good tactic to engage in to start thinking about addressing the challenges we're seeing from 2022 so far, you know, the people that I've spoken with um, are really, their strategy is really just to be more um, engaged with their donors, the people who are, um, and their patrons and, and the people who who are their supporters, um, because it's it's not really clear that there's this great strategy out there that's going to work. It's it's always tough in, a, in an uncertain economy and with inflation. And so right now, people I've spoken with are really at a point where they're just like, let's, you know, let's um, try to reach as many of our supporters as we can. Let's try to keep in touch with them. Let's try to let them know what we're doing. Um, Let's try to talk to them more often and touch base with them more often so they can understand what the need is, where we stand, what our position is, um, because that's going to be the way that they're going to know that we're in need and that they can do something to be of assistance. Um, The people we talked to about giving didn't have that great of um a picture to paint um Mm -hmm. the people with foundations said that foundations were expected to give less corporate giving they expect that also to be down um because particularly in sectors like tech where they you know amazon cut its amazon smile program this year um meta slashed a bunch of its um people who work in their philanthropy section and so it's just certain um types of giving that were available are going to be down this year. And I think to make up for that, you're going to have to reach a broader base of people. And it's going to, it's going to be a, a tough year probably if yeah. things continue as they are. I also want to add to that. I think, you know, Rashida outlined sort of the reality of the the best practice and the best path through this sort of what seems to be tough year. Um, I think that it's very tempting for nonprofits to try and kind of skip the hard way and go and f- towards people who they know can give big right now and just focus on those donors. Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke with Josh Burkholz, who's the chair of the Giving USA Foundation, and he made the point that that was the strategy that folks used after the financial crisis in 2008. You know, nonprofits saw colleges and universities doing pretty okay because they had a strategy of focusing on major donors of you know winning bequests of having these like huge blockbuster campaigns and some non-education nonprofits looked at that and thought huh maybe we can try that model for our nonprofit so you saw major giving really take off and that led to this trend of sort of donors down dollars up that had been really the the story and giving until quite recently especially you know this year we saw that that trend that trend cease um but you know experts told us that 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 strategy of focusing on the few donors who could give really huge gifts that has sort of led us to where we are 
now where individual giving is falling across the board among small donors and large donors, and foundations are sort of becoming a bigger play player in philanthropy. But as Rashida just said, you know, they're expected to sort of tighten their belts this year. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it seems like a good short-term strategy um, to go after, just to focus on where the money is. But over the long haul, you know, those donors can be fickle because they're affected by inflation, by the stock market, certainly to a greater degree than your average donor. Um, and so it, it's a risk that that perhaps uh, nonprofits should avoid taking. Well, speaking of, let me just recognize, first of all, we're running a little low on time, so I, I, we're going to have to wrap pretty soon here. But I do want to just look at something that's maybe not in this particular report because it's not measurable in the same way that Giving USA is talking, which is how people are maybe exercising their choices around social good that don't fall into traditional um, nonprofit type things. Uh, you know, speaking of kind of post-George Floyd murder situation where a lot of people started giving money more in mutual aid societies, uh, you know, in in places where it's a direct gift, a GoFundMe, a whatever, which isn't, you know, traditionally thought of as charitable giving, but it's still helping out somebody else with your money in ways that maybe we didn't do so much in the past where you might have relied on your local charity to do that. And now there's so many other ways to directly support something, including um, for-profit institutions that are doing social good work uh, that are out there trying to, you know, grab people's uh, dollars and say, you know, we're a benefit corporation, you should spend with us instead of, you know, wherever. I don't know that we have a sense of, you know, how much the GoFundMeism of of uh, charitable support is eating into traditional philanthropy. Is that anything either of you have any feelings for, or, or an idea of whether that is replacing where some people might have otherwise given to institutions? Well, that is a actually something that everyone is trying to figure out. I know there's a group called the Generosity Commission that is really looking into this. And a couple of the people I spoke to are on the Generosity Commission. And I think that's what people are trying to figure out. You know, what is it? What does a GoFundMe do? And, you know, if a person has given, you know, three GoFundMes, do they feel that's their charity for the month? And, And so they're not going to go give to, say, some traditional nonprofit, um, because there's no you know, there's no tax, not no tax write off, but the tax situation has changed. There's no right. incentive to be like, oh, let me make sure I give this to like some charitable nonprofit for your your everyday donor who's giving five, ten. Um, while individually, that's a small amount. Collectively, if all these people are, are just donating to a GoFundMe or other causes that they see online that are, are not your traditional nonprofits, then they're still giving. Emily, do you have any thoughts on that before we get ready to wrap up? I mean, it's just been a real challenge for philanthropy for as long as folks have been thinking about philanthropy. I, you know, I think, you know, researchers and scholars will make the point that we tend to think about philanthropy as, you know, quite a white field, but um, there's been plenty of other cultures that have been doing this informal direct giving that isn't counted, but certainly makes a big difference in community for generations and there's a long history of that. So I think it it's it's hard because it, it, if you wanna talk about philanthropy more in terms of generosity and sort of the spirit of goodwill, there's so much of that that isn't counted and I don't know how we would go about counting it. So it's, you know, it's tricky. <laughs> it's good to remember right. it's been a problem for a long time, but 
with the rise of GoFundMe and, um, you know, more sort of digital ways of accepting donations, even sort of giving on Venmo, that sort of thing through right. to mutual aid societies, you know, it's become a lot easier to do that type of informal giving and uh, a lot harder to count. And to Rashida's point, you know, for most of us, it's not going to make any uh, difference in our tax bill at the end of the year. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, you've really got to be in a particular position where um, giving to formal charities makes a big difference in your tax bill versus giving these other ways. And I do think that your point of, uh, Emily, you were talking about earlier on really having to connect with those donors in a very direct, more meaningful way of, you know, we're in front of you, we're getting our message to you versus that, um, I think, a very, um, you know, gut-wrenching kind of connection of, I need help with cancer treatment, or I have to leave my state in order to get gender affirming care. And, you know, all of these things that are like a very specific person that you can really identify as opposed to, well, we help a lot of people and like, well, this one person is in front of me right now. And if it's not going to be a tax thing, and if it still feels good that I'm helping someone, maybe there's more happening there. It would be lovely to be able to see how much of that kind of giving is happening, but right. I mean, so much of it is just completely off the books. I mean, you know, Venmo transfers and cash app and, and other ways that we're just not having any way of knowing whether that was a charitable thing or somebody just reimbursing their friend for lunch. There's just no way to have a sense of that. Uh, it's an in interesting thing, but I think charities might be able to um, take part of that message of how is that really gut connection to the mission happening for you where it is happening in some of these more um, individualized asks, whether they're, you know, eating into this larger philanthropic pie or not, I guess we just don't know. Uh, any last thoughts you want to make sure to share? We will have links to um, the infographic that kind of helps or explain some of these things. Uh, your full article, of course, at the Chronicle of Philanthropy, but are there any other things you want to make sure uh, we talk about before we wrap up for today? I think you covered everything that um, I was hoping we would discuss. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the key is just, yeah, for people to to keep at it. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be right. discouraged by the report, I would say. Right. I, I do think that there is a spirit of generosity out there. It just maybe isn't being uh, captured in this same way that we were used to seeing it in Giving USA in previous years. And we've just got to be ready to respond to that with new ways of reaching people. Uh, Peer-supported fundraising campaigns, I think, are still tremendously important to have You know, the people that already know your work reach their networks and say, I can vouch for this. This this organization is doing important things. I want you to give because I know them. And that kind of thing can help break that barrier. But, you know, it's usually in smaller dollar amounts to make the introduction. And that hasn't been the focus so far. So as you talk about rebalancing the scales and looking at how do we get the larger number of smaller donors to start getting in with the hope that maybe at some point that becomes a more regular gift, maybe even a more substantial gift later on if there's a generational transfer or something, all of those things. And we could talk about this for so much longer, but we are definitely out of time. So I'm just going to uh, get uh, get ready to close us out and just thank Rashida Childress, who is the senior editor for fundraising at the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and Emily Haynes, a senior reporter at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Thank you both so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Steve.